Hello, beautiful people. You are listening to the Communal Table Podcast, part of Food & Wine Pro. I'm your host, Kat Kinsman, and really excited about today's uh, guest who I... It's been just such a joy to see her uh, really step into her much-deserved spotlight recently. (laughs) You're making a face. You're making a face. But uh, I have admired her work for such a long time as a journalist, as a, as a video host, as a, just as a, as a human being, really. Um, I've gotten, gotten the chance to uh, work with her editorially before. And, uh, now her cookbook, uh, has come out and it has been a really, just a, a joy to see it, um, people celebrating it and it's called Indian ish and this is Priya Krishna. Welcome. Thank you. Oh my goodness. So you're on this side of the the microphone now. It's very weird. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because I, you know, I think of you as a journalist who Mm -hmm. it gets really, really deep in on your subjects and uh, how's, how's been, how has that transition been for you to be this cookbook author who everybody wants to talk to right now? You kind of find yourself becoming – after you give a certain number of interviews, you find yourself becoming the person that that I hate as a journalist <laughs> where, like, you've got your – like, I find myself giving the same answers and I'm like, oh, God, am I one of those people who gives canned responses now? But at a certain point, people ask so many of the same questions. Right. You're like, <laughs> I can't reinvent new answers to these, but – um but yeah, it is very funny being on the other side and imagining like, what are they, what are they going to quote? What's the opener? What's the kicker going to be? Like, <laughs> right. So you're probably thinking of these sort of structurally, yeah. because, yeah. Um, but it's, it's been really, as I said, a treat to see people embrace this book so much. I, I was lucky enough to be a tester on this book and I was probably one of the most annoying testers on there because I have so many dietary restrictions. You were not the most annoying tester. Oh, okay. Good Just no. not by a long shot, Kat. There was, uh, I remember I was reading an interview with you and somebody's grandmother was really uh, irked about some was it beans yeah the chickpea flour green beans which is i i don't think that's a controversial recipe <laughs> but she it, hated them what was her, what was her issue with it i don't know so the background is this woman i guess it was a friend's grandmother she wanted to test recipes and i gave her the chickpea flour green beans because again i thought it was like a pretty simple and un, and uncontroversial recipe and she just sent me an email being like hi priya i made the chickpea flour green beans and i wanted to let you know they were disgusting and that was a word that's she used was disgusting that's all she is that's all she said <laughs> <laughs> i unfortunately haven't gotten to try that one because that is like straight up in my wheelhouse of like stuff i my gut doesn't yeah. handle but i kind of want to eat them right now they're really good i mean i called like all the other friends who tested it and I was like is this disgusting and then my friend Caitlin was like I'm literally sitting in my kitchen eating a pan full of them (laughs) so no (laughs) I I understand the pan full of this too because I made an okra dish of yours that it was you know I had to share it with my husband and I was almost annoyed to have to share it because (laughs) I wanted to just keep eating it that is one of my probably one of my all time favorite dishes made in our house. That was one of those dishes where I'm like, I'm not sure how many people are going to make this because okra, there's a lot of spices. Like this is definitely one of the more ingredient heavy dishes in the book, but I don't care. I love it unapologetically and I want to eat it every day. Yeah. And so let's talk okra for a second because <laughs> uh, we were sort of chatting before we, we started this podcast. I have an okra tattoo on my arm that unfortunately I'm wearing long sleeves today, but I, it is that important to me. And it is a beautifully cross-cultural uh, mm-hmm. ingredient that you find in Southern, you find it in Indian, you find it just all over the place. And it's... Uh, 
it seems to be a love-hate kind of thing for people. Yeah, you know, I think it's either, like, either people hate the slimy texture or they only think it should be deep fried. But I feel like the slimy texture, it's like you can very easily get get rid of that. You just right. need to cook it properly. I feel like a lot of people just don't know how to cook with okra. But it's something for me that's always been – it's always just been an everyday part of my life. So I never – I don't know. I never tasted slimy okra. That was new to me when I heard about that. Yeah. I think maybe people have just had bad okra. People yeah. try okra. Even okra raw is a lovely thing. I don't I'm not I'm not crazy about raw okra, but I think it's just because I've gotten so used to my mom doing this like great like basically how she does it is she like kind of dry fries it yes. and it chars and crisps and I just love the way that it just gets those like crisped burnt edges and I just did a dinner with Katie Button who does oh, karate in Asheville. Love that one. And she made the okra. And I hadn't eaten that okra in a really long time. And I took a bite and I almost started crying. I was like, this is my mom's okra, Katie. <laughs> but this also is you translating your your mom's okra in a really meaningful way. And for people who aren't familiar with this, your mother is a huge component of the book, which would you call it co-author? She's my co-author. Yeah. She's, on, she's on the cover of the book. That was mm-hmm. like a stipulation. My mom's name has to be on the cover. She wrote all the recipes. I love that so much. And I mean, what was her... Uh, take on being asked to do this? Is it something she ever aspired to? Because I mean, I know that you know her her cooking is so deep within you, but is, mm-hmm. is it, writing a cookbook, is this anything that she ever considered? Was there a negotiation process with her about doing this? <laughs> it was kind of one of those things where I sold the cookbook and then I was like, <laughs> I sold a book of your recipes, mom. <laughs> <laughs> and, and And was she just all in at that point? Yeah, I think my mom was really excited about it. I think what's really interesting about her career is that my mom became a software programmer almost because she immigrated here. She wanted a career and that was what my dad was doing. So it was like a known entity to her. But I always wonder what would happen if if she had a choice, like if if she kind of knew all the different career possibilities that were available to her, Um, if she had a close friend or family member who worked in food. Like I I definitely think she would have been like a recipe developer. Like I see my mom as like a Melissa Clark type figure were she to not not have gone into I mean I hope that this book has kind of made her into that in a way and you know my mom's retiring this year and you know she's um not she's not even 60 yet so she's got she's got a whole other career in front of her it's her time it's absolutely her time I mean it it's Reading the book and reading everything about the book and the conversations that you've had around it, one of the joys of that has been getting to know all these things about your mom and her as a, you know, a boundary buster, mm-hmm. all these sorts of things. So did you grow up with her encouraging you to like, hey, go be a journalist or go and you were studying French? You were Yeah, I think the biggest thing for my mom was that she wanted to, my, me and my sister, she wanted us to be independent. She didn't, she saw in Indian culture, women are financially dependent on men. And I think to her, it didn't, it didn't matter what, what we did. She was just like, I want you to be, feel professionally fulfilled and be financially independent. She was like, I don't want you to have to rely on anybody else. I want you to just, you know, be able to rely on yourself. And I feel like that was the, that was the dominant discourse when we were talking about, you know, the rest of our lives at home. That is a fantastic and important thing too, because I, you know, I also was sort of raised. They they wanted my parents wanted us to be happy, my sister and me, and it didn't matter what that looked like. 
uh, to them, which is which is great. So they never sort of forced us into a particular model of having to be yeah. a certain way. You know, didn't didn't expect us necessarily to get married or have kids or you know do whatever they wanted us to. You know, have an education, so we would have the possibility to do whatever we wanted to. And so you, when you were studying, um, you. So this is not your first book. No, it's not, which <laughs> most people think it is, but it is not. Yeah. And well, the book came out of your college experience. The first book came out yeah. of your college experience. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, I had, I, I was one of those people who I just like, compl- I got to college and I was like, these are my people. This is who I am. I was bullied in high school. I did oh, not fit same in. Oh, <laughs> I, de- I was on the debate team and I was right. like very much on the outskirts of mm-hmm. social life. And then I got to college and I was like, these are all like-minded people who think like me and, you know, don't want to, they like love working hard and they're super nerdy, but they also really like having a good time. And it was, and it was just one of those things where I immediately just like fell into the campus culture. And one of those things was writing a food column in the, in the college newspaper where, which school was it? I went to Dartmouth in Mm -hmm. Hanover, New Hampshire. So, you know, in Hanover, there are no restaurants. So a food column could never be like a restaurant focused column. So I was like, what if, you know, I figured out ways to jazz up dining hall offerings. Like, you know, you take a sweet potato and layer it with some butter and cinnamon cereal and microwave it and put ice cream on it. And it kind of tastes like sweet potato pie, <laughs> you know, things like that. And so every week I would publish this column. It was called the DDS Detective. DDS stands for Dartmouth Dining Services. And I love that. <laughs> like, I remember this was like for the first time ever, I remember seeing this guy on on a Friday when the column came out, he would have the column in one hand. He was at the cafeteria and he was following things around and people didn't see my byline. They didn't see that like I was not anonymous. So some people thought I was anonymous. So they'd be like, who is the DDS detective? And I'd be like, but you can see my name. My name is right there. (laughs) I love that. I mean, so you had a really uh, early exposure to food writing in in that particular way. And the effect that it has when people are making your dishes. Yeah. And like not in the way, you know, not in the way that you think that they are, but they're they're making your dishes in the dining hall. And it so happened that the the Dartmouth Dining Services Administration was also reading the column. And so they were like, could we hire you to just like help consult on our menus and tell us what students want? And so they hired me. I was like Dartmouth's first dining marketing person. And I was also certified to drive a bus. I had my bus license. How did that happen? (laughs) (laughs) You know, well, for another organization, I had to get bus certified. So I had my bus license and they were like, we need someone to drive the bus to different dining conferences around the country. So I drove the bus. I like drove all of the dining people to these conferences and I got to go to these conferences and figure out like, what are the ingredients that, you know, these other colleges have access to? What are the new things that are coming into dining halls? What equipment do people have access to? And I realized there's a finite number of ingredients and equipment that most dining halls seem to have on hand. And that's kind of when the idea for the book came about. Like, what if I could create like a universal version of my column that like, no matter what dining hall you're in, here's how to change up your routine. I love this. I mean, and do you consider, was this your first foray into journalism? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I was writing the, the column originally came out of me writing for the culture magazine. Um, Dartmouth has this amazing magazine called the mirror that basically like looks at a different aspect of Dartmouth life. We did one on gender. We did one on 
you know, harassment even before the Me Too movement, um, Greek life, things like that. And I think one thing that I took away from that is like I love looking at what things like how you can use an issue to like as a as a reflection of like what are our cultural values, what is important to us. And I think I realized while writing that column that food is a really great way to do that. Food is an oh, food is always a good way in. There's always a food angle. Yeah, they're really, really. <laughs> yeah, you can you really can find the food angle. Yeah, in absolutely everything. Let's, can we back up for a second? If this isn't too uh, weird to talk about, um, you talked about being bullied in in high school, and you know, I I was too, and feeling othered in 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 different ways. And food was the way where I was able to connect with people and draw them in what, you know, I, you know, I was a weird kid growing up. Um, and I realized if I could feed people, uh, you know, have them come over and like bake for them or whatever it was, you know, it was a little bit easier to, you know, connect with people. Um, I know that you've talked about having that moment where, you know, you were eating different food than the other kids around Mm -hmm. you because you, you grew up in Dallas Mm -hmm. in and you went to the majority Jewish school, Mm -hmm. I think. And so you were the person who was bringing a, like a lunch that was different. And that, in that way food can, can other you from people. When, when did you make the shift from othering to connecting on food? It wasn't until I started writing about food, truly. Like when I was growing up, I made my my mom pack me PB and J's because I just did not want to feel different. I mean, it was ironic. The person I was bullied by one person, and it was like another brown girl. Yeah. Um, which it's always that's always what happens. Mm-hmm. It's like the crab in the bucket mentality, and so it almost like alienated me even more from my culture. Yeah. That happening. Um. And I think it was. You know, when when I went freelance from Lucky Peach, I I didn't know what I was doing. I I had never written a story before. I remember someone asked me if I had written a long form feature, and I sent a college paper a paper from college, yeah. <laughs> and you know I had to write what I knew. And so I I I talked to my parents. I mined them for stories, and I started to realize like these things that made me really different are is a perspective that's not well represented in food media. And when it is represented, oftentimes, you know, the people writing about Indian food aren't Indian. Yes, that is very true. And and it's exoticized in a really yeah. super crappy way. It's reduced to the word curry. It was just – and, you know, I was like, I can sit around and complain about it or I can be that voice. Um, and I didn't want to pigeon myself in, into writing just about Indian food. Mm-hmm. But when I was starting out and sort of figuring out how to pitch and how to come up with nuanced ideas, it was – a really good sort of starting point right. to be like, okay, what are what are the food traditions in my house, and how would this translate to this magazine or this publication? Yeah, and and you do, uh, you know, you're also a journalist who writes about other people mm-hmm. in in a in a really meaningful way, whether you know it's a kitchen. You know, a restaurant that is trying to combat the uh, the opioid crisis, or you're profiling a chef, or you're you're writing about um, the butter chicken. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, uh, the, you've written for the freaking New Yorker. <laughs> I mean, this 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 is such a you know you you have a, a a place in the pantheon. It's a really really lovely thing. I mean, I'm looking at these these bylines that you have in the New Yorker and the New York Times and and all that, and you know I. 
how does I, I we were just at a conference at the ICP conference in Santa Fe mm-hmm. and I was running a panel on imposter syndrome and anxiety and stuff and I stacked the deck with some people who I think to be really really high powered in this yeah. I had Nick Sharma Osai Endelin and and Kim Severson on this panel and them all talking about and you know they're all people who have really well respected bylines books all this kind of stuff and them still feeling this particular yeah. way you have amassed this how does it feel like do you feel like aha I have made it I have of course not yeah <laughs> I guess I, and I say this because I think it's important for people to hear this conversation said out loud among people who you're going to be on the today show next week you're going to be doing all these things it would be very easy for somebody to think like she's sitting pretty now yeah no, I, I never, ever feel like that. In fact, I feel like the one thing my mom always tells me is that I need to just like, when a good thing happens, just s- stew in that happiness yeah. for, for a little bit more. I'm so bad at stewing in my own happiness. Same, same. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always like, okay, I've done this, but like, what's next? I mean, I'm always thinking not about what I have achieved, but what I haven't achieved, mm-hmm. like, you know, honors I have not gotten, places I have not written for, this pitch that I haven't heard from, this place that didn't cover my book. I'm always, always, always thinking about that. And I feel like I, I you know, I my therapist told me that every morning I need to wake up and write down one thing that I'm really excited about for yeah. that day and something that I'm really proud of. And I started doing that. I need to start doing it again because I just got back from my book tour. But I feel like that was a really great reminder of like, this is why today is going to be a good day because I'm doing this awesome thing that I have earned because I am a accomplished and like talented human being. And that is a really, really hard thing to say out loud, especially as like women, we're not, we're told, we're sort of told to not toot our own horns. And when we do, it sort of feels out of turn and uncomfortable. Um, and I mean, even just promoting the book in and of itself and so talking hard. about yourself, oh, God. you're just like, you just like want, you're like, you, you like to yourself, you're like, can you just shut up about your book? <laughs> <laughs> this is what you need hype men. I will happily yeah. <laughs> be your hype man. And it, it's funny because I, I, I so want to champion the people who I think are, are doing such a great job. And I see the depth with which you tell other people's stories and uh, it, 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 in a, in a really special way that nobody else could, could could do of your rigorous journalist and it and you know and you have these parts of yourself out there too and I know that putting yourself out there is a a kind of a terrifying uh, thing to do to be the person who writes about other people and then be like here's who I am yeah and also you know I I love I wanted to, I do want to get into the ish of Indian ish but I know that there are going to be people out there saying well that's not Oh you my know. God. Every day. I think that's what gives me, has given me the most anxiety is people, Indians, especially Indians from India reaching mm-hmm. out and being like, why are you calling for olive oil? Why are you explaining this to people? This is obvious. You know, why are you saying this? That's not right. You know, this represents upper caste views. You know, it's always, always comes back to caste. Um, it's just, that that stuff is really really hard, and I feel like I'm still not good at dealing with that. It's I mean that's got to be so. Anybody I know, who you know what we're in this really great phase of you know first generation, second generation, um, starting to write cookbooks. And uh, when I saw you ever so briefly in the hallway at this mm-hmm. this conference, we were talking to another writer, um, Jake Cohen, who is doing Jewish, and it's it's a really I feel like and. You, Totally correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like 
we are in a really amazing and exciting phase of writers claiming what maybe made them different as a kid, maybe made, made them different from the dominant culture around mm-hmm. them growing up in America and really owning it in a, in a special and meaningful kind of way. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's awesome. I feel like this sort of ish style cooking sort of puts a label on what's been happening for a really long time. And I realize, like when I think about the restaurants in the U.S. that excite me the most, there's always that element of ish, someone combining the flavors of their heritage with the city that they're in or the influences that they've had. And I think, you know, I think it excites me the most when in that food you can see a story. And I feel like that's what distinguishes it from like fusion cuisine where you're just kind of arbitrarily combining these two things and there's not really a meaning or a narrative behind it. Yeah, there, there felt to to me in this book to be such a deep reality, like your reality. And it's it's funny, it must feel so personal working on it, but then have you, what's the universal been like? I'm sure that so many people, I, I remember I saw Mindy Kaling put yeah, you. Yeah, that, that was wild. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, I imagine that seeing representation like that for like first, first gen kids has got to be, how, how, what's been the response from other people who have, have grown up with immigrant parents, uh, you know, having this experience of growing up, you know, as maybe not part of the dominant culture, but claiming their own. What's, have you heard from people about yeah, that? Yeah. And I, I almost feel like those are the people I'm most excited mm-hmm. to hear about um, is people who are like, I, I've never seen someone who looks like me in the Bon Appetit cast kitchen with a book, you know, doing this sort of thing. Um, I think it's I'm something I'm really careful about because I don't want to pretend like I represent the yeah. entire Indian American experience. Absolutely. But I think... You know, like in the same way that, you know, when I would see people like Mindy Kaling on The Office and Manith Chowan on Chopped, like it means something to see people who look like you in the mainstream media. Yeah, that is got to be huge. Please tell me you save those emails, you save those letters, you're able to bank that somewhere and and hold it. I should. It's it's a lot of Instagram DMs. I don't know yeah. how to save those. <laughs> Screenshot that stuff. You know, I, I think it's it's really important because the thing is, this is not going to be your last book by any stretch. This is the you know this is. This is, uh, you know, just another sort of wave of stuff that you have coming in in your career and stuff. And it's so easy to get down in the in the parts between in the parts between writing a big story and the parts between writing a book. And I feel like it's so important to bank that stuff and hold on to it. Yeah, no, I I I totally agree. It's just it, it's just got it's like those are the things that I tear up the most when I yeah. see because I was definitely a kid who was like why is there no one who looks like me on TV or in food magazines? I mean, even when I open up food magazines now, Mm -hmm. like most of them don't feature people who look like me or dishes that I grew up with. I feel like, you know, I talk a lot about with other Indians, how like you read a food magazine and the operating assumption is that you grew up eating like roast chickens and spaghetti. Whereas to a lot of people that is foreign food. That's as, you know, as, strange as it gets like I've never I still have never roasted a chicken and I don't know like it just it's just it just feels like the dominant narrative is like a very western centric one so I feel like the biggest thing for me that I feel like I can do is show like everyone has a different normal and my normal Mm -hmm. is dal chawal and we shouldn't pretend like everyone is operating from the same normal yeah 
that is such an important thing. And I mean, and it's definitely something where as an editor, as a writer, uh, you know, I, I've had to, you know, sit with myself in the discomfort of my own framing of, of mm -hmm. things and realizing, you know, where I've othered people or, you know, and, and that kind of thing. And, you know, I, it's, it's a work in progress. I see, you know, people may be starting to do the work, but I, I think a lot more could be done about that. And yeah. Like, you know, there, I read in a magazine, someone was like, you may not have heard of gochujang, but I'm like, eh, well, <laughs> qu quite a few people in America have because they're Korean. Who's the you? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I saw uh, Samin Nosrat call out Rene Redzepi just yeah. like in the, in the last few days of saying... Um, Whatever I forget. Georgian what cuisine is undiscovered. I'm like, hold on, yeah. Georgian. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I've known about this, but I mean, and and you know, and maybe there's the baggage of people saying like, oh, I haven't found like the you know the Scandi stuff or you know, yeah, you know, and and it's you know it's such an other thing, and and I think that we're swallowing a lot of discomfort along with this stuff too, and and it's it's so important to to have those awkward conversations yeah. around it. Um, but you uh, in Dallas, growing up, you rolled deep with family. Yeah, we had a and still have an enormous, enormous family. Um, in fact, I literally, in between the conference I went to and my stop in Nashville, I flew home to Dallas that I could hang out with my family and that we could all watch the Game of Thrones series finale oh together. <laughs> so lovely. And how did you feel about it? Uh, it was complicated, complicated feelings. Could be in a whole other podcast. <laughs> I like food writers on Game of Thrones and also uh, Avengers. Like it tends to be, somehow become a through line on this. You'll hear me talk about Deadpool on an upcoming yeah. episode actually. Um, but I, I love that, that you, you know, had this you know, in, intense family situation. Um, how did the cooking break down gender wise? Oh, I mean, it was pretty, I mean, it's, it's funny. You'll find dishes from my uncles and my aunts in here. Um, I would say it was pretty, it was pretty split. I mean, the, the other thing is like all my aunts and all my uncles, everyone worked. No one didn't work. So it was not like someone had more free time right. to cook than the other, you know, my, um, Uncle Haymonth ran his own software company, but my aunt Sangeetha was a pediatrician. They were both equally occupied. So they would kind of divide and conquer the cooking responsibilities. They each had their signature dishes that they would make. Um, and I feel like growing up with there not being the expectation that a certain person cooks was really awesome. I like definitely grew up with a lot of the really traditional norms around gender and even culture kind of not existing for me. Um, it's funny that you mentioned that my school was totally, was was really Jewish because I remember asking my mother being like, oh, so Judaism is the predominant religion in America. <laughs> <laughs> and my mom being like, ah. <laughs> I, mean, I grew up just straight up Catholics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, sort of getting out of that bubble was interesting. But, yeah. well, actually though, um, in my, I remember and I've written about this this moment a few times because it was just kind of what changed food for me. Uh, my mother would cook the everyday stuff and my my dad would do kind of the weekend stuff specifically because my mother was working on weekends yeah. and she, you know, taught the religious education program um, at our, our parish. And I And my dad loves to cook. And I remember coming home one day and I was like, the house smells different. It smells amazing or whatever. And he had picked up Madhur Joffrey's invitation mm. to Indian cooking. And so that became... 
our sort of norm around the house was cooking these Indian dishes to the point where they just kind of became yeah. part of the, the repertoire. And they were, and and I want to uh, get into this a bit because it, for him, it was like the project cooking kind of thing. But you've spoken really openly about making sure that this stuff isn't uh, in your book, especially not considered project cooking. It's yeah. just cooking. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think especially when you see a lot of publications cover food from communities of color, it's not included in like the everyday home cooking section. It's like, we're going to do this really pretty five page spread with recipes. But the presumption is like these recipes aren't everyday recipes. But the food that I grew up with is the food my mom made in 20 minutes when she got home and had to put dinner on the table. It's very, you know, straightforward, unfussy food, minimal steps, minimal pans, the grocery bill is affordable. All of these things are considered because that's those are the constraints my mom was working with when she was cooking and shopping. Yeah, I mean, what I really loved is I, I was testing your book and uh, Chandra Ram's book at this at mm-hmm. the same time, and it was such a it was really an excuse and a joy to be able to go and replenish my ingredients on things mm-hmm. because some things I just hadn't cooked with for a while and had to toss out some things I hadn't used before, and I you know I bought all these ingredients. I've kept on using them. Like that's it, great. You because you taught it's not just recipes. You've taught technique in yeah. there as well. Can we talk about building up uh, spices and and layers uh, just with 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 toasting with with using ghee with uh, just bringing up getting more out of spices? Yeah, it's funny. I feel like people think it's this really mysterious process, but it's just like as long as you put some oil or ghee in a mm-hmm. pan and toast your spices, you can even toast them dry without any ghee. That's when you're getting the most flavor out of them. And you don't have to grind them. My mom loves using whole spices, and it's an it's it's less of a step. Like, we use mostly whole cumin seeds, which I feel like not a lot of people aren't necessarily, like, Western audiences aren't necessarily used to, like, biting into a whole cumin seed. But it is, they're amazing. They add this amazing texture. They're a little bit smokier, a little bit earthier. Um And it's funny because I feel like people are so nervous about cooking with spices. And so I made a little guide in the book, like a flow chart that's like how to cook all of the Indian food in this book. (laughs) And it's basically like an overgeneralized chart that I was trying to get more recipes from my mom. And she got so exasperated on a napkin. She was just like, here's how I develop recipes. She was like, you start with ghee or oil. Then you either have this combination, this combination, or this combination. You never combine these things, but everything else is fair game. Then you add your veggies. Then you add your onions. Then you add your veggies. Then you think about what acid do I need? Then you think about does this dish need texture? And looking at that, I was like, oh, Indian food is so easy. Yeah. It's literally just starting with your spices, adding onions or garlic or ginger or all of them, adding your next step, whether that's your vegetables or your protein, and then like finishing it with some sort of acidic element and texture. That's all it is. Yeah. And <laughs> it, it it was felt so achievable when I was doing these. I mean, I just, I practically fist pumped <laughs> while, <laughs> while, while making things because it, it was... The using the spice as a textural element mm-hmm. as well was kind of the just the really thing that that sent it over the top uh, for me because I'm such a texture junkie. Yeah, to have that crunch, to have that that yeah, beauty you, in there. You tested the green chili, cherry tomato, quick pickle, God, right? Yeah, that. and that is just like a textural journey of a dish. 
and it takes five minutes. I used it on everything. I actually need to new, make a new batch of it <laughs> because I just started using it on things and I could feel it like in that really great way up through my ears yeah. a bit. And it's such a beautiful thing. And it was cool and refreshing. It's, I love that recipe so much. Yeah. I, I think this summer I just need to have it in the pantry yep. at, or in the, in the fridge or whatever, you know, at all times. And that that's a real, another really great thing about the book is these things that kind of cross over that you can make you know, a, a, a condiment of, of some sort and, yeah. and transform. And it, it's, it's one of those things where, uh, what you did in this, and I can't talk enough about like the amazing structure of, you know, the, the charts and things that, that you made. It's like seeing through the matrix. Like <laughs> once you do it, you're like, I can achieve that. Thing. <laughs> I, you know, and that Talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about the process of writing a cookbook, because this, you know, this is sort of a, you know, the Food and Wine Pro audience. And I know there are a lot of people thinking, probably a lot of restaurant chefs uh, and people in food, or I think there are a lot of just civilians, too, who think like, oh, I want to write a cookbook. Yeah, it's real hard. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it is, I I feel like I I went into it knowing that it would be difficult, and it was 10 times more difficult. Yeah. I think that what fundamentally makes a book really cookbook very stressful is that it is a million teeny tiny decisions that all feel monumental. Every little thing feels like from, you know, the way that the chilies are positioned in this photo when you're taking a photo to, you know, the explanation of this dish to, you know, is it two tomatoes or three tomatoes? Like, you know, every, everything keeps you up at night, you know? And, and it's so funny because I would get over a hump and be like, wait, the hard part is done, but no, it's every part is hard. Um, and it's unbelievably rewarding, but it's hard at every step, you know, first figuring out what are the recipes that are going to go in here. Then, you know, I moved home to Dallas for a month to test them. And that was really stressful because I was just every single day I was waking up, I was sauteing onions. It was just like, it was, it was, it was really intense. It's, and it's really, it's really hard. And when a recipe doesn't work, it's really disheartening. And my mom would come home and tell me everything that was wrong with oh all the God. dishes <laughs> I had made. Um, and then we'd cook things together and she would sneakily add cardamom. And I'd be like, mom, there's no cardamom <laughs> in the ingredient list. And, you know, th- you know, working with your mom is wonderful in the ways you think it'll be wonderful. And like re- also really difficult in the ways that working with your mom and your family can be really difficult. Um, but then there there were just there were certain moments that just you know when you when you taste something for the first time the very first time I tasted my mom's sag feta which is um this oh. a classic sag paneer but she swaps out the paneer with feta I remember I I almost I like almost cried I was like this is so good like and I hadn't had it in a really long time and just having those moments of like my mom is a genius yeah <laughs> made all the difficult moments a little bit better. But, you know, it's 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 really tough. I think a lot of people don't know what they're going into when they're getting into it and also like how much how much of your time it takes at every step, you know, it's up to you to lead the charge on publicity and marketing. Yeah, it's let's up, talk about that yeah. hustle. That's hard. It's really tough cuz you know, ultimately like it's up to you and your like you've got the contacts. Like a publicist can reach out as much as they want, but if like but if you have the personal relationship, it's you who has to send that email. And and that's really tough. And that can be really taxing. And it's really stressful. It was so stressful for me sending an email being like, hi, I have a book coming out. Like, 
do you want to do something on it? And being like, hey, cut, like cover me. You know, it just feels so weird and I, icky. God, I know. Yeah. <laughs> My book came out the week after the election. So <laughs> yeah, it's it's really hard. And I thought like, I don't want to interfere with people's lives. I don't want to yeah. you know, do whatever. But the thing that I have seen, and this has really been a joy, is to see the people rally. I, I think I had tweeted a while back about, you know, this is going to be the book of, of the year. Like it's, I, I, got, I remember getting the galley of it and being like, yep, this is as good as I thought it was going to be. And, and it's been really fun seeing people find the book and want to shout it from the rooftops. And people don't do that with all books. People, uh, you know, have become your hype man. Mindy Kaling became your yeah. hype man. Was that a surprise by the way? It was... Yeah, I was, I was sitting on my couch alone oh my and there was no one around me. And I remember I saw that and I just looked around being like, who, who can I tell this to? <laughs> this is insane. Well, and the picture was great too. So you had done a fashion spread. How did that picture happen? Um, it's really that, cute. That picture is, yeah, I, it, I've, I'll never look that fashionable ever again. Um, so I was asked opening ceremony for fashion week. They basically wanted to do on a like all Asian catalog for their fall lookbook just highlighting what they called like like powerful Asians they called it slasians <laughs> oh my god good hashtag like. um and so Angela Demiuga actually brought brought me in to be she's fashionable yeah, human she is being extremely fashionable I was like wait Angela like you're also going to be in this shoot like will I <laughs> Like Angela's like a whole nother level of fashionable. Yeah, she'll like yeah. roll in wearing a Muppet. Like. Right, exactly. I was just like, I, and I was like, I don't know, maybe opening ceremony clothes are too out there for me. But then I showed up to the photo shoot and they were like, what are you comfortable wearing? And I was like, I love printed pants. I love prints. And they You're were like, I'm wearing pants printed right pants now. now. And so they gave me like this like printed pants with a matching top and these beautiful shoes and these huge earrings. And... I mean, I, I just felt so cool. I was sitting next to the woman who wrote the book of for all the to all the boys I've loved before. Oh, and Jenny I was, Han. yeah, and I was like too embarrassed to say hi and that her book like changed my life and that I loved the movie. But it was like I was surrounded by all these people that I was like, these people are way cooler and more accomplished than me. And I just feel very lucky to be in this room right now. At the same time, this is what we talked about on the imposter yeah. syndrome yep. thing. It's like you were asked to be there. It's not like you just sort of rolled up like, hey, I'm Priya. <laughs> you know, it's not, you know, it's not like they weren't expecting you to show up and, and pull, uh, pull clothes for you. It's a really, really hard thing. And um, yeah. so we were, we were talking a little bit beforehand. Um, and actually, I'll, I'll bring this up. I don't always do this, but sometimes I wear a specific necklace for a specific guest. Mm -hmm. And and you, I, and today, if people are just listening to this, it's a whole bunch of little tools on, on a thing. You do many things and you do the work at all of them. And there's this weird thing that happens when you kind of shift around in, in genres, when you're a journalist who now is a cookbook writer and you mm -hmm. also do videos and, you know, it, it, and, you know, I'm sure you have a million other sort of things within you. Is that, has that self-definition process been a difficult thing? Yeah. I mean, at a certain point I was like, do I have to choose? Do I have to be either a journalist or like a home cooking personality slash mm -hmm. cookbook author? And I had a conversation actually a few weeks back with my editor at the times and he was like, no, why, why would, why would anyone make you choose? Yeah. Like who's, who is making you choose? And I was like, I guess no one is making <laughs> me choose. He was like, if no one's making you choose, then why are you stressed about this? Yeah. I get it though. But like, yeah, like people, 
like I always think like, you know, if you're the one telling the stories, like who's going to care about your story? Because maybe it's presumed that if you're the one telling the story, you don't have a story to tell either. People are complicated and have many yeah. layers to them. I, I'm, you know, I love seeing when people have, you know, uh, uh, they release a new facet of themselves. You have a bus license, like that. <laughs> not, not anymore. It's expired. But, but. <laughs> still, like that is the thing I did not know about you before today. And I, I just think, like, I, it, it, it's just people constantly surprise me, and I really, really enjoy that thing. Um, and we also, you know, I've, I've listened to other people interview you about this too. But I would like to talk about how not getting the book necessarily, you know, ghettoized. In, in a way, um, you know, put into the international cooking to have it mm-hmm. to be in general cooking. And that like, has that been a battle to, you know, have it categorized on Amazon or in bookstores or anything like that? Is that a battle that you've had to fight? No, because like, I, I feel like I don't, those are decisions that I almost don't have control over. Mm-hmm. And so knowing that I was like, I'm going to make the, I want the word American to appear on the cover. What is the subtitle of it? It's recipes and antics from a modern American family. Antics, <laughs> a- antics was a word I thought I thought of long and hard. I was it's like, a- they're not just stories; they're antics. They are antics. <laughs> um, and and I wanted someone who's figuring out what to sh- where to shelve the book to realize like this is as American a story as it gets. You know, there is this perception of like a smiley white chef on a cover. That's what American cooking is. That's not, I mean, that is one facet of American cooking, but American cooking is a lot of things. And I just, I desperately did not want to be, you know, to told that I'm, that basically my book is not from here. Like I am not from here, you know, being, you know, same thing happens on the street. People tell me like, go back to where you came from. And I want to be like, Texas? Yeah. I just um, interviewed uh, Vishbot, mm-hmm. who I love that man. And I love him so much. He's oh, to, and to see him win a James Beard Award was so great, was such a thrill. And I, I don't know what order podcasts will air in or not, but I uh, sat down with him and I was actually staying at the same house as him in in Chicago, and mm-hmm. we were debating, okay, are we recording this before or after the <laughs> awards? Because it could have gone either way, yeah. and it, it, you know, and luckily it it went a really really good way and yeah. we did it the you know after he'd won his his award right now the working title of his book is I'm from here that's an amazing title yeah i i love that cuz you know he grew up in india he but he's spent half of his life in mississippi or or just you know in in the south and you know people expect him to be cooking indian food he's not cooking indian food and but he always is having to answer that question where are you from i'm from here yeah and the thing also that he and i talked about was um, his worry about he—he's been part of this the Brown in the South uh, sort of coalition, yep. doing these pop-up dinners throughout the South. But then I think he worries about getting put, you know, too much on the, this particular table. Like, yes, we've built totally. this new table, but totally. then how, you know, then you worry about getting sort of niched in too hard on that. Totally. Like I heard Welcome. conversations. I was like. We already like my tooth salads exists by Asha Gomez, which and is I about love that one. It's a great, it's a great book about her experience in the Indian South and the American South, and you know there are places that are like, well, we already have a cook about an Indian chef in the South, therefore we don't need another one, which is insane. Or like you know, I hear like Nick Sharma. I heard him say in an interview that a publishing company was like, we've already released an Indian cookbook, so oh we don't need God. another one. 
as if like there can only be one or two it's not freaking highlander yeah exactly um and so that has always been so 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 surprising to me that people are willing to put out like a million chicken and (laughs) keto and pasta cookbooks but in some reason like indian cookbooks or korean cookbooks or just cookbooks that are not white somehow people are like oh we that's where people have a limit same thing with staffers. They're like, well, we have one. Oh, we God. have a, this, this staffer, so we don't need another one. I mean, it, you, you see it everywhere. Yeah, it is It is a thing that, God, I, do you feel like there's a change afoot? Do you feel hope at all in this realm? I feel, I feel hopeful on some days and less hopeful on other days. I think I see, I'm really proud of my colleagues at the New York Times who I feel like have really this past year to recognize like we are a mostly white staff and something needs to change and we need to change our staff. We need to change the way that we get recipes. We need to change the types of people that get, you know, prominent coverage in the newspaper. And there has been a really marked shift, I think, in the Times coverage. And I've been really like amazed and like impressed by everyone over there. Yeah, it's it's been pretty palpable, and there's always more that can be done. Yeah, like I would love to see a, a columnist of, of color over there. Yeah. I think that would be amazing. But, you know, I think, like, putting Tejol back in the restaurant critic's seat um, so <laughs> was just was amazing. I'm so, 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 so happy to see a, a woman of color in such a powerful position like yeah. that. I mean, she's just a straight up great writer. She yeah. could write about anything. Literally anything. <laughs> and, and I would read it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when you were writing um, the cookbook and, you know, and you being a journalist who writes the cookbook, were, were there any particular role models that you had? Like you loved their approach. You loved how they write a head note they, or, or how they categorize, like who were, who were you looking to, to do this? How did you learn how to do this? I had a lot of friends who were cookbook writers who just were so good at and so open with lending me their advice. I mean, the first person that comes to mind is Julia Tertian. I've always admired Mm -hmm. her books. I think I remember reading through Small Victories and just loving how conversational the tone was. Like she was just having like a casual chat with you. And I wanted my book to feel that same way. And I think that's how, you know, when I'm not doing my like, you know, big profiles that that's how my writing naturally is it's really conversational kind of reaching in and being like here come into my kitchen let's hang out and no worries if you mess this up it's all good (laughs) um so that style was something that really resonated with me in terms of recipe writing um Mary Frances Heck was just so home home crew here at Food and Wine was just so 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 unbelievably helpful I would send her recipes and she would send me back a list of questions I need to answer in that recipe. She would streamline the recipe for me. She did such a good job when we worked together on the Lucky Peach cookbooks on making those recipes so doable and straightforward and, but still, you know, written in a really beautiful and fun way. And I relied on her a lot. Um, And then also other Indian cookbook authors, like I talked a lot to Chitra Agrawal about, you know, how do you describe, how do you talk about Indian green chilies? How do we identify those? Is there a specific varietal you can point to? And can I just say red chili powder? Or do I have to say Kashmiri red chili powder, cayenne, paprika, you know, things like that, that when you're writing a cookbook with Indian flavors, that the dilemmas that come up. Um, and then the other person who I just 
really have admired for a really long time is the woman I profiled in The New Yorker, Urvashi Pitre. Her book on Instant Pot Indian food was kind of what, like, really, really re-engaged me with cooking Indian food at home. Um, I remember making dal in my Instant Pot and, like, to use your word, fist pumping. I literally, like, (laughs) fist pumped the sky. I was like, this is so fucking good. (laughs) And I... I also love the tone of her recipes. I love the doability of her recipes. It was amazing to me seeing how she had inspired a generation of Indians to cook the food of their heritage. People who never thought that that was possible, but who craved those flavors of home. And I was like, I would love, I would love to follow in those footsteps and to do something really similar to what she she did. Yeah, I, I imagine there will be. This book is a gift to people and and I feel like it'll help other people who have become disconnected from Mm -hmm. from their food or you know the generosity of spirit brings in people like me who you know I I grew up with my my dad cooking these 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 foods from from cookbooks Mm -hmm. and it's something that somehow I lost along the way I think you know because I don't cook as much as I should I cook a fair amount but I but I don't and then by the time I do it I'm starving and, and think but it really reinvigorated my relationship I don't think I told you this, actually. Um, maybe I did. Uh, it made me entirely reorganize my cupboard system. Because <laughs> I realized, like, you reintroduced me to things that I had been missing for a while. And I thought I need to organize my uh, my cupboard situation so I can reach for th- those those things easily. Um, and I started setting out a speed rack uh, <laughs> for myself of things that I keep, like, right That's out on the awesome. counter. Yeah, so you actually had a huge influence on the physical makeup of my kitchen. Wow, so I, I'm honored. It's it, it's really become such a beautiful thing. And then having, you know, my husband come home and be like, oh, so what's happening? Because, you know, it, it was just a really, really lovely thing. To, you know, it's, it, thank you for, for, you know, I always I talk sometimes about that, like, moment in Narnia where, like, opening up the wardrobe yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. But you did that for me. And this book did this oh, for me. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny, Kat, because I feel like you sent me this super apologetic email of, like, I can't eat this and this and this. <laughs> and I was honestly, I looked at that list and I was like, actually, this book is <laughs> is kind of really perfect yeah. for these dietary restrictions. And so when I was assigning you recipes, I didn't really have to change anything. I looked at the recipes and I was like, these fit with all of, you know, Kat's dietary needs. And I think one thing that has been really exciting is like Indian food is actually a really accessible food to people who have different restrictions and preferences. Like there are pancakes that are, that have no eggs in them. They're, it's literally just lentils, um, there is a scrambled egg dish that has no eggs because you replace the eggs with tofu or paneer. Um, you know, I get questions all the time of, you know, gluten-free, dairy-free, vegan. And I weirdly feel like unintentionally my mom created like a very inclusive yeah. lineup of dishes. <laughs> Wait, once I saw the final recipe lineup, I was like, I can eat the majority of this. Sadly, I can't have lentils, but that's like the one thing. And uh, I can never, I'm never going to be able to have your dad's yogurt. <laughs> And that's about, or maybe, maybe my stomach will get fixed because like this is the thing that, that because it's, happened. Yeah. And... The, my dad claims his yogurt can cure anything. <laughs> oh my gosh. So you, <laughs> we talked for a second about how many people have your dad's yogurt starter? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've so many. In fact, I was, when I was home for a day, 
um, my dad was like, oh, yeah, like 10 people came by today to get my yogurt starter. And this is just like a casual thing that happens in our house. That's so nice. <laughs> so what's, what's the family's response been? Um, they, I mean, they were so confused at first because I remember I had the whole extended family over for a photo shoot and – they were so confused that there were cameras there, but they were like, whatever. And so they just, it was so funny. The photographer was like, I've never had a family that's so natural. And I was like, I think they just like pretended to ignore the cameras because they were confused. And I remember showing them, we had all the photos hung up that we had taken and showing them like, Sonyami, here's your chicken, Rachnami, here's your rice noodle poha. And, you know, they didn't have those moments where they were like, oh, my God. They were just like, huh, cool. It's like, <laughs> what is this again? Oh, my God. And, and then I think seeing the final product, they're just, I mean, I don't know. I think they're really, they're, they're really excited. And it's more just like they just find it so funny that random people at home are making their garlic ginger chicken and – you know, their sog feta. Like my uh, Aunt Sonia saw her chicken in the New York Times and I had forgotten to tell her. Oh my goodness. And she was like, yeah, I saw this chicken recipe. It looked a lot like mine. Then I was like, oh, this this is literally my (laughs) chicken recipe. (laughs) Please tell me she like cut it out. She put it up. My my family's not like the cut it out, put it up. She was just like, this is cool. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I want, maybe this, I just want this for you. Like, no, totally. It's so funny because people are like, oh, like, have there been like lots of like sentimental moments? And there have been sentimental Mm -hmm. moments, but my family is definitely like a, like we all recognize that it's really cool, but we're not like stewing in its coolness. Maybe this is where, where my (laughs) refusal to like recognize happy moments comes from. But I mean, I think they're all just like really excited. I think they, I don't think they, I think they also just had no idea that the book would have any kind of resonance. Cause I mean, they have no idea. They don't know how yeah. this works. And so they'll text me. I get texts every day with them being like, my patient told me that she bought this book and that she saw my name in it. And I told her that you know, that's my recipe or this, like people who don't know that they're related to me being like, so-and-so told me about this book. And I had like the pleasure of being able to say I'm related to that person. And so that, I think those moments are really cool. Um, you know, I think all any Indian parent ever wants is to be able to, at the party, to be like, what's your kid up to? To be able to understand <laughs> what they do and like say something tangible. <laughs> oh my, I really hope they all tune in and watch the Today Show next week because oh, the Today Show is something they very much understand. <laughs> that and like when I was in the Wall Street Journal. Right. They all, they understand the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> I love that these like different family benchmarks. Kind yeah. of like, I'm going to ask you the worst question. Uh-huh. What's next for you? Is there another book on the horizon? Is there uh, um, new profile that you're working on that yeah, you can talk about. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm always excited about like, like I, I geek out over all of my stories. I was just, I, the benefit of traveling across the country is that you get really inspired. I was in Nashville the other night and I met this woman who's telling me that Nashville has the biggest, um, population of Kurds outside of Iraq. Um, and she was like, and, you know, it's been really interesting in Tennessee. It's like a very, it's, you know, politics is very divisive here. And a lot of people are really terrified of ICE and the travel ban and the way that they have all come together and like band as a community is through tailgating at Tennessee Titans football games. Wow. 
And so there's this like small but mighty group of Kurds that make like kebabs and pita and cheese like in like feta. And and she was like, this woman, she's Gujarati, part of like the Gujarati tailgating community in Tennessee. And she was like, you know what? Like Kurdish food makes amazing tailgating food. It's all like great finger food that you can just like pick up and munch on. And so I, you know, if I've, I've emailed a few of them and so hopefully they respond. And so that's a story that I'm hoping to work on um, late a few months from now. I, that one I was so excited about. I really want to read this story. <laughs> <laughs> if nobody else picks it up, I'm picking it up. Well, I need this story. It's amazing. I'm, I'm so thrilled for you. And a question I ask everybody, what is the selfish thing that you want? This is the moment you get to say out loud, what is the thing that you, that you want? this the, for yourself i would love like i would love an indianish like home cooking show oh hell yeah like i want one that takes place in texas with my parents with my family with our family friends with everyone that sort of normalizes the upbringing that i had and where you know we talk about the importance of toast in indian cuisine where we make yogurt with my dad and use it in all these different ways where we go out to Tex-Mex restaurants and then come home and make roti enchiladas. Like I want a show that is reflective of the life that we've lived. Cause obviously, I don't know, I feel like through the book it's, it's resonated. And I don't think that there's necessarily a show out there that's done for Indian food. What, you know, other people have done for Italian food and French food. Um, I think that would be really nice. Yeah, dear Netflix, Hulu, <laughs> Amazon, <laughs> CBS, HBO, like whoever is listening to this, like please do this for Priya, do this for the country. <laughs> I, I I would watch the hell out of that show. Yeah, let's make that. Yeah, I, I, let's I, will it into the universe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I totally I totally believe in saying saying it out loud. So, what is your comfort food? Um. It's funny. Enchiladas are a huge comfort food because I grew up in Texas and that is that is it for me. Also, gari, which is this, it's this turmeric yogurt stew that you cook until it gets really, really thick. And my mom adds peppercorns and a lot of ghee and chickpea flour and you serve it over rice and it is like being wrapped up in a cozy blanket. That's it's so good. And every like... Uh, they made it in Nashville, Manith John made it, and in Atlanta, Marijuana Irani made it at the dinners they hosted. And I was like, I could have eaten like 10 bowls of this stuff. It's so good. Oh my God, I want that right now in my face. It's <laughs> so yummy. It sounds so good. Um, what is the last meal that you had that made you emotional? Um, I was in Nashville yesterday, and um, I guess peaches are just now in season. So Thank I went, God, I went last year was a trashy year for peaches. I went to this place. It was called Marche and they were doing peach toast. And she was like, this is day. This is the first day that we're doing this because we just got peaches in. And it was literally just like grainy bread with ricotta, currants, honey, and then just like tons of peaches. God. And mm. The pe- like I just wanted to pick up the peaches and eat them, just slather them in the honey and the ricotta. It was so good. And, uh, God, I don't like taking pictures of my food, but I was like, I need to take a photo <laughs> and remember this amazing peach toast. Oh, God, that sounds so good. <laughs> oh, I really hope this is a good peach year because last year was uh, – yeah. I have a good feeling. Good. Oh, God, <laughs> if we can have like simultaneous good peach year and good tomato year, I will be – and a good okra year. I mean, most years are good okra most, years. Most years are good okra years. But yeah, t- tomatoes last year was not very good for yeah. tomatoes either. Yeah. So here's hoping for this year. <laughs> what is the last meal that somebody made for you in their home? 
what's the last meal? My mom, she made me kichri, which is a lentil and rice porridge and something really like almost like it's almost like an alchemy that happens when you cook rice and lentils in the same pot, like the their respective starches and the pot liquor comes together to just make this like almost kanji-like silken velvety texture and you top it off with a lot of ghee and um, red chilies and it's just, it's so good. And my mom, my mom made it for me the one night that I was home between all these events and it was perfect. She just knew you needed to fill your battery. Yep, exactly. That is what it is. It is a battery filling dish. Oh God, that's <laughs> lovely. Um, what living musician would you want to cook for and what would you cook them? Um... Let's see. Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, someone I'd really, I'm like really dying to meet is Lizzo. Um, yes. I feel like this is achievable. Yeah. We, my, my boyfriend and I bake with Lizzo in the background quite a bit. Like we both really love her. So I feel like, you know, I would, I mean, I'm not as good as baking, but I would like make Seth bake something <laughs> for Lizzo. Talk for one sec about <laughs> Seth baking. <laughs> Explain this, please. Um, it is a, it's an Instagram series in which I document, um, my boyfriend slash roommate baking, baking anything really, whatever he wants to bake. And, uh, and yeah, and I guess people, people really like respond viscerally to the baking process and Seth's like goofy dancing to Lizzo and Bollywood songs. <laughs> and they, and can people follow along? How do they follow? Just, Seth you can just follow me at PK Gourmet and then just watch my Instagram stories. If, if I'm Instagram storying on the weekend, it's usually Seth Bakes. <laughs> In fact, it's really funny. I've been posting all this promotional stuff for my book and the number of people have been like, yeah, yeah. When's Seth baking? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Okay. So he gets a series too. <laughs> I hope so. Or at least I hope like at the end of of like there's like a 10 minute segment at the end of each show where it just like cuts to Seth Bakes and he's in his Book of Mormon apron and like making baklava. <laughs> oh my god I would subscribe instant I will pay for this to, to watch this is amazing. So you've been on the road and good god is that exhausting. Yes. And you've been doing all this. Let's say you have five uninterrupted minutes for self-care what do you do? Oh that's a really great question um I would, I would like go on a five minute run with my best friend, Kate. Seriously. She is, she is my rock. She is my, I have an actual therapist, but she is like my, my healthy friend equivalent of a therapist. I don't know what I would do without her. And the 24, the like small 24 hour periods that I've had in New York in between book tour stops, we've gone for runs. We'll just run anywhere. I'll get off the plane, put on my workout clothes, meet her. We're not fast runners. We talk while we run. We're doing 11 minute miles, but like that nothing calms me down like just like running with Kate I love this I love all of this and I'm I'm so glad you came today and I really people buy this book <laughs> cook from the book uh make sure that that Priya sees you cooking from from the book you can tag her on Instagram at PK Gourmet yeah on Twitter all these things but I, I think you've done something uh I can't wait for award season next year because it's it's going to be all over there but you've done something that is really important and beautiful and I just can't wait to see what you do next thank you this was really wonderful oh, well thank you so much for for being here today and people can find you all online at prakrishna.com dot me 
dot me. Okay. Yeah. Dot, uh, dot com was taken. <laughs> oh my gosh. Darn you, other <laughs> pre- Krishna. Um, so, and thank you to our producers, Jennifer Martnick and Alicia Cabral. Thanks to Douglas Wagner for our delightful theme song. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend, write a review, or rate us. And those really matter in people finding the podcast, it getting listed, us getting to uh, do these more often. If there is someone you would like us to talk about, something you'd like us to talk about, or a guest you'd like to hear from, please let us know. And you can find me on Twitter at Kitten with a Whip. Find out more about the show and catch up on all the episodes at foodandwine.com and Food and Wine's YouTube page. Thank you for listening. Take good care of yourself till the next time and go buy the book. <laughs>